Hello, and welcome to the Carl Road Baptist Church podcast. Be sure to listen all the way through to the end of the episode for additional info on where to find more resources for past sermons, as well as how to watch us live each Sunday if you can't join us in person at our Columbus, Ohio location. Let's prepare to hear this week's sermon and listen for what God is saying to you and what he wants to do in your life. you that would like to follow along, uh, you can open your Blue Pew Bible to page 992. But Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and beyond the Jordan, and those from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they heard how many things he was doing, came to him. So he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. For he healed many, so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him and called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. Then he appointed twelve that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach, and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. And they went into a house. Then the multitude came together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. But when, he, but when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons he casts out demons. So he called them to himself and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but has an end. No one, in, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be given will be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation, because they said he has an unclean spirit. Then his brothers and his mother came, and standing outside they sent to him, calling him. And a multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brothers? 
And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my mother and my sister. Thank you, Mark. Well, I want you to think back, if you're, if you're here today and you're married, I want you to think back to the time when you weren't, the time when you were wondering if you would get married, who you'd marry. Uh, that time for me uh, was a pretty scruffy time. I was in my 20s and I desired to get married um, and you know, was trying to figure out what that looked like. And I had this, I had this one experience several times in my, in my dating career, if you will, where I'd ask a girl out and miracle upon miracle, she'd say yes. And we'd go on a date or start hanging out or something. And um, I'm not gonna qualify it, but I, I, I'm kind of an intense person and I, I don't do casual very well, uh, this kind of undefined hanging out. And so um, I would, after hanging out with a girl a few times or for a while, I would initiate uh, what they called back in my day, the DTR. Anybody remember these? Do they still have them? Anybody, what's DTR stand for? Oh, nobody? Nobody knows. It stands for define the relationship. It is a conversation called the DTR conversation where you define the relationship. It's the, it's the conversation where you would say something like, so we've been spending time together a lot and I really like you and I would like to be your boyfriend or I think I would like to make it official or there's no real non-awkward way to DTR. <laughs> there's no non-awkward way to define the relationship, but you just kind of put it out there like, I like you, you know, what, what is this? And there are a couple of conversations, uh, DTR conversations that I had where after hanging out with a girl for a while, I would say, you know, let's make it, official or talk about what is going on here. And she would look at me like I was crazy. Like, what? We're just, we're just friends. We're just hanging out. And then I would look at her like she was crazy. It's like, we went on a moonlit walk and held hands. Like, is that what you do with your friends or, or whatever? And, you know, and it was like, well, that defined the relationship. We were, we were on different pages. Dating is messy because it's a process of figuring out where you stand with one another how important you are to each other, the degree of intimacy and what the direction of the relationship is going to be. Then I met Camille, my wife, and we had a, had a little bit of a rough first meeting interaction, uh, but then we, we fell for each other very quickly. And uh, there was one week where we hung out like almost every day that week and she introduced me to her small group and her friend group. And then we went on a big official first date and. I was like, okay, we, we got a DTR. We got to define the relationship. And, uh, but I had gotten a little bit better at it this time where I, I wasn't going to lead. I was going to do what Jesus did and start with a question. How would you describe our relationship? <laughs> I asked her, which pro tip, if you're single, start with a question. Um, and she looked at me like I was crazy. I'm like, oh boy, here it comes. She says, uh, we're dating, of course. I mean, how would you describe it? And I was like, oh yeah, yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, yeah, I would like that. Uh, but I also would add, I'm not interested in any other girls, which was a leading statement because the reason why our first interaction, our first meeting went bad was because Camille told me she was going on a second date with another guy and that I could have one of her girlfriend's phone numbers if I wanted, uh, ouch. Uh, and so I was trying to like, you know, feel it out. Like, are you still going on dates with other guys kind of dating or, and she was like, no, 
I'm not interested in anyone else. Boom, we were, we were dating, an exclusive. And not too long after that, because I'm kind of an intense person, I told her, I was like, hey, I don't want to freak you out, but I'm trying to marry you. And, uh, and, then, and then I did, and now, now, we, now we are here. Uh, and that, the crazy thing about the whole dating slash finding a spouse process is that it's a, it's a fork in the road. There are these moments in life where the entire trajectory of our lives swing in the balance. This is why we watch romantic comedies over and over and over again, because it's this dramatic fork in the road time of life. You're spending time with someone and maybe they become the most important person in your life until you die. The mother or father of your children, or maybe they're just someone you went on a couple dates with a long time ago and don't even remember their name. That's a huge swing. It is a time where someone could go from being an absolute stone-cold stranger, complete random person, to being family, being the person the Bible says is an extension of your very self. And I go into all this today uh, because we have a passage before us that is an invitation to DTR with Jesus, to define the relationship with Jesus. And just like marriage, a lot swings in the balance. It is a dramatic fork in the road uh, that changes the, the trajectory of our lives. And the unifying thought of our, the, uni, the big idea, the unifying thought of our teaching text is the question, who is Jesus to you? We see several different categories of people in our teaching text interacting with Jesus in different ways and at the core of the passage, the main idea I want us to soak in uh, this morning is the idea that Jesus invites us to be with him and to become his family. Jesus invites us to be with him and become his family. The cry of my heart is that we would be absolutely dazzled and floored by the fact that as we sang earlier, Jesus calls us friend, but in this text, he even takes it a step further and wants to call us his brother and sister and mother. God in the flesh calls you and makes a way for you to have this intimate, loving, companionable relationship. I'm, I'm, this is a positive message. There's so many scary, confusing things in this, in this passage we're gonna look at. There are a lot of theological rabbit trails that we could go down and form teams over and fight about and stuff like that. But I hope we don't miss the heart-melting beauty, the staggering invitation that Jesus gives us today uh, to be as close to him as family, to be like his mother and brother and sisters. So let's dive in. Mark 3 seven through 12. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and, and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep people from crowding him. For he healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. So this story comes right after a showdown that ended in a murder conspiracy. If you were here last week, there's this moment in a synagogue 
Jesus heals someone and the, the rulers of the synagogue start trying to figure out a way to kill Jesus. And so Jesus withdrew to the lake, uh, which is a good Jesus pro tip. If uh, people are trying to kill you, withdraw. <laughs> withdraw, maybe lay low for a minute. Uh, at this point in Jesus's ministry, his fame is like a runaway train. Like if Mark 3 were a movie, it would, it would be chaotic and action-packed. So he's fleeing from people who want to murder him. And now he's trying to get to the lake and he's jostled by crowds. The, the, the language there in the Greek would be like uh, he was being crushed at risk of being like stampeded. People were traveling for days on foot to be near Jesus. And it would have been an unruly mob of people from all over the place, people who had widely different cultures and belief systems who would have been very hostile in their cultural relationships with one another. You have the Samaritans and Jews, straight up Gentiles from Tyre and Sidon and devout Jews from Galilee. This is like a popular, controversial uh, politician showing up. And the paparazzi, the, the media, like elbowing and pressing in on him because their paycheck de it depends on them getting a picture and a good quote for their newspaper. And then there's impure spirits in, in the crowds in some shape or form, shouting out that he was the son of God, which was enough to alarm Jesus to get them to be silent. The scene is chaos. And the brilliance of Mark's literary work here is that this passage is set in stark contrast for what comes immediately next. Look at verse 13. Jesus went up on the mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed 12 that they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. So he's in this chaotic mob, and then he goes up to the mountain to be with who? Those he wanted. And the chaos of crushing crowds who want stuff from him to be healed or whatever they want from him, he goes up to being on a mountain quiet with those that he wanted. And what does Jesus choose them for? What does it mean to be chosen by Jesus? It means three things. Be with him, be sent to preach, and fight evil. Being called by Jesus is, it encompasses so many aspects, all of the aspects of what it means to be human. Our, our relational dynamic, our, our verbal dynamic, which honestly flows from our beliefs, from our understanding of reality, the story that we think we're living out, and then the behavioral, what we do. I love how J.R. Edwards summarizes this in the, describing the relational aspect of Jesus' call. The simple prepositional phrase to be with him has atomic significance in the gospel of Mark. Discipleship is a relationship before it is a task, a who before it a what. From now on, his person and his work determine the existence of the 12. Discipleship is a relationship before it's a task. This single truth, it will save us from so much brokenness. It, it, there's an extravagant grace that anyone who would trust in Jesus gets to be with him, to know him. Before Jesus wants you to do anything for him, he wants you to be with him. He calls you to be with him in a relationship. 
Discipleship to Jesus isn't like getting a master's degree from a professor with classes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Instead, it's this relational reality, a 24-7 kind of experience of being an apprentice where you would work together, you would eat together, you would sit and talk after work around the fire, you'd go for long walks between towns, you'd set up your tents and traveling next to each other, do evening prayers together. Following King Jesus means you're doing life with him. Honestly, the, in our day and age, similar to how you would with a spouse. Apprenticeship got us past the initial first moment, moments when we try to be on. Like when you're dating, you're putting your best self forward. But the whole point of dating is to not have to do that anymore, to get to marriage where there's enough trust and security and belonging to where you don't have to be on all the time. And following Jesus means you, you don't have to be on. You don't have to be put together. You, you are just you with Jesus, which means you'll say dumb things, which the disciples did all the time we see in the scriptures. Uh, we, we try things and mess up. Uh, we, it means Jesus sees us in the morning when we're grumpy and have bad breath. He, sees, he hears what you say when you open the fridge and something falls out and spills all over the floor and speaking for a friend. What, what if you believed that Jesus loved you enough to relax? in Jesus's presence? What if you believed that Jesus loved you enough to feel safe around the king of the universe, to not have to be on, to be enclosed in grace, to just be you and let the true you out and let it be healed? That's what it means to be called by Jesus. Jesus called those he wanted. And as we've said throughout this whole teaching series through the gospel of Mark, it's a call to you and I. Mark is writing this gospel to show King Jesus in all his beauty and authority and to call us to respond to that authority to, be, to follow him. To say yes when Jesus says, follow me. And just consider the guys that he calls for a brief moment, this list that Mark read for us. There's so much grace kind of implicitly involved in this ragtag group of men. First, James and John are called the sons of thunder. And there's this hilarious story where a town rejects Jesus and James and John are offended for Jesus. You ever get offended for someone? Like they're fine, but you need to be offended for them. This always leads to a mess. And James and John <clears throat> tell Jesus, do you want us to call down fire and destroy this town? which is funny on multiple levels. First, do they really think they could do that? Have they ever done that before? You know, why, why is that their idea? And two, do they really think Jesus needs them to do that, even if they could? Like, couldn't he do that for himself? They are making fools of themselves with Jesus. Like, I got to imagine Jesus just kind of like chuckling, rolling his eyes as he corrects them. We talked talk a lot about Matthew a few weeks ago, how he was someone getting rich, extorting his own people, the Jewish people for the Roman oppressors. And alongside Matthew, who's getting rich in collusion with the Roman empire, we have Simon the Zealot. Zealots were a sect of Jews who were basically political terrorists. They were known for their daggers and their modus operandi was to kind of blend into a crowd and then use their, their dagger to assassinate various Roman officers or officials and then kind of blend back in to the crowd. They were people fighting Roman empire through violence. So we got someone getting rich with the Romans and someone who 
had probably murdered Romans before following Jesus. They're united in the redemption process under King Jesus. This is a, a scruffy, scruffy group of people. That, can you imagine what the, the, the morning political talk would have been around the fire over coffee with Jesus' disciples? But it's to these people, he says, be with me. Be with me so that you can experience the truth that the kingdom of God is at hand, that life with God under his rule is available to everyone, and then go preach the good news. The, the last two things, the preaching the good news and the having authority over evil naturally flows from the being with Jesus. If you experience life with Jesus, you want to tell other people about it. If you experience the goodness of Jesus, the, it naturally follows. You want other people to have that same experience. And as you've been with Jesus, you will naturally be against the things that Jesus is against. You will preach the good news. You'll be speaking words for what Jesus is about. And then you'll, you'll resist the things that he's against. You'll resist the things that are contrary to the kingdom of God. You'll see the beauty of Jesus's way of life and you'll stand against evil. But often in our day and age, I think a lot of times those of us in church, we get the order wrong. Instead of starting from this deep uh, being with Jesus, where the time with Jesus being the, the center, the pole star of our beings, we start with ministry where we are effectively avoiding Jesus, minimizing time to be with him so that we can serve the church and you know, let the message go forward. And this is why we have those core values in our kids' ministry that you were all so patient while I tried to articulate. It's relationships over tasks. Our relationship with Jesus and our relationship with the kids. Kids ministry might be at the top of the list of types of ministry where we can get all caught up in the hubbub uh, of ministry and just be miles away in our hearts from Jesus, even as we're trying to tell kids about Jesus. Or we start opposing evil. There are a lot of evil realities in our culture that Jesus followers can and do and should oppose. Abortion, racial injustice, poverty, all these things. But if we fight evil and miss the being with Jesus part, that often leads us to be bitter, cynical, jaded, ranty people. We will miss the brokenness in our own lives while we're out trying to fix the brokenness out there because we're not allowing Jesus into those tender parts to heal us so that we can then be agents of healing in the world. So that's the first half of our passage. We have juxtaposing crowds pressing into Jesus because they wanted something and Jesus calling his disciples, those that he wanted to be with him. Things get even more uncomfortable in the next chunk. Look at me at verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house and again, a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him for they said, he is out of his mind. And then the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, and he is driving out demons. So a rough couple sentences for Jesus. His family thinks that he's out of his mind. They think he's crazy. And they want to take charge of him. Isn't that a, a haunting expression? They wanted to seize him, like 
grab him, get him out of the public's eye because he's making the family look bad. And then the teachers of the law, the people who know the Bible the most, think that he is possessed by the devil, using the devil's power to do good, using the devil's power to free people from the bondage to, the, to, the, to evil, to the devil. Who is Jesus to you? Is he crazy? He kind of makes us look bad. Is he demon-possessed, evil? They see These responses seem extreme, but they're honestly kind of refreshing. Because one thing I love about this passage is that no one in this passage is, is saying, oh, Jesus is just a great moral teacher. He's, just got, he's a wise guide for life along Buddha and Confucius and um, Gandhi and whoever else. C.S. Lewis has this famous quote, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God but let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not let, left that open to us. He did not intend to. The liar, lunatic, or Lord. First, Jesus addresses the teachers of the law and their claim that he was possessed. And this is just some masterful argumentation, a masterful response. Look at, at verse 23. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against himself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes Satan, if Satan opposes Satan himself, if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. So he pulls out, points out the foolishness of their argument. Civil war destroys nations. It's not advantageous to anyone. A house divided falls. If Satan is fighting himself, it, his time is over. It's just common sense. If Satan is now in the business of freeing people from bondage to Satan, then what are we even talking about? The war is over. Satan never frees people from bondage. He can't. It's against his very nature. And after dismantling their argument, he drops this bomb, this parable, verse 27. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. All right, put on your thinking caps. Who is the strong man in this passage? Jesus, gotcha. That was a trick question. Because Jesus is almost always the answer until the answer is Satan. Follow me, follow me. That was a trick question. Sorry to embarrass you. But uh, we've got we to give Satan some of the answers, I suppose. Because what is happening? Whose house is getting plundered? Satan's house is getting plundered. Jesus is going around casting out impure spirits, plundering the house of the prince of demons. Why? Because he has bound the, bom the bounder, the bonder whatever that word is. He, is. he has tied up the strong man. Satan is the strong man. And Jesus is dropping this bomb and is saying he is stronger than the strong man. It takes a stronger man to wrap up 
the strong man and then plunder his house. This is a massive statement that Jesus is making is that he is Lord over evil, that the the power of the enemy, the power of the prince of demons is nothing compared to him. The evil one is bound and helpless and Jesus is having his way in Satan's house, casting out demons. And then Jesus gives them this stern, terrifying warning in verse 28. Truly, I tell you, People can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Now this passage scares us a lot. You know, like we immediately think, what if I do the unforgivable sin for eternal condemnation and guilt? How can I avoid doing something that can never be forgiven. And what does this say about the cross? You know, is he saying there's some sin that's too much for the cross to take care of? Consider the context of who Jesus is saying this to. It's to people who saw the, the power of the Holy Spirit working in Jesus to free people from evil, to free people from slavery, bondage to evil. And they're saying that's, that's, that's the work of the enemy. They are blaspheming by calling what is good evil. What it's like is if you needed surgery to save your life and there is a doctor who can do the surgery and save your life. But in your perspective, the doctor is not there to heal you and save your life. The doctor is a twisted sadist that wants to chop you up and inflict pain on you. And so you reject surgery and die. If that's how you see doctors, there's no hope. You'll never, get, you'll never get better. This is not Jesus saying there's one extra bad sin that makes God extra angry instead of saying Jesus is saying that if you were so twisted in your perspective that you see the work of God, the work of the power of the Holy Spirit as the work of Satan, then nothing, there's no hope. Nothing can save you. You're under punishment forever because the very one, the only one who could offer forgiveness appears evil in your eyes. It's a terrifying statement, a terrifying place that the Pharisees, the teachers of the law are are in. But again, this is a warning. And I want to, I just, I really want us to see that this is not Jesus being mean. He's not trying to offend. You warn people that you love. Our two-year-old Isla is a crazy person and she will run straight to the street if we let her out unguarded. And we are very stern with her because we don't want her to get hit by a car. Jesus is warning them in very firm language because they're so far gone that like if you stay on this path, there is no hope. If the work, the liberating work of the Holy Spirit seems like Satan to you, then I don't know what we're even talking about here. Behold Jesus' tough love, friends. Jesus loves these people who are slandering him, calling him demon-possessed, and he's warning them. Warning them that they're on a, on a road that will lead to eternal guilt. Verse 31 takes us back to his family. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Think of G- thinking Jesus was out of his mind. His family left Nazareth, 
went down to Capernaum, where they are now, uh, to take charge of him. And they arrive at the house, and the house is swarmed by a crowd. And they're like, hey, let Jesus know. You know, they're kind of, you know, name dropping. I'm, I'm Jesus's mom, and I'm Jesus's brother. Let him know that we're out, so he'll come, and he'll, he'll let us in, or come out and see us, or whatever. And imagine Jesus sitting in the middle of the house, it's surrounded by a crowd, and he's sitting in a circle with his, with his disciples, his, his inner crew, his, his inner circle. Uh, and the, he gets word, hey, my, your mother and your brothers are outside. And he says, verse 34 or 33, who are my mother and brothers? Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. It's a, it's a very emotionally complex passage. It's really uncomfortable to see Jesus's family think he's crazy. You know, some traditions like really revere Mary, the mother of Jesus, but at least for a minute, you know, she, she thought he, her son was crazy. But it's also so beautiful if we, if we can see it, what Jesus is showing us. Because this passage shows us the good news that you and I can become Jesus's family. Again, not just Jesus' friends. He does call us friend, and that was a lovely song. But it's even more than that. He has so many, so many different ways that he would describe his people, which is that we can be his brother, sister, and mothers. And the power of Jesus' statement about those who do the will of God becoming his brother and sister and mother would have been far more revolutionary than it would have been in our day and age. Because today you might live far away from your family and you know, only see them at Thanksgiving and Christmas. You might have a circle of friends or coworkers or church family that are way closer than your brothers and sisters or parents are. Um, but back then that was not the case. You, you did not have families. That are, someone lived in Miami and Boston and Portland and you know, met in Nebraska for Christmas you know, once a year or something like that. Family what, was your probably your business. There's a family business. It was a place of economy. Uh, you shared all things in common. Like you didn't have your own property. It was like the family's property. And you, you often lived together, like two or three or four generations in the same household. The very intimate thing that would have blown people's mind. So Jesus is not saying like, you'll be my family and we'll cook out on the 4th of July and I'll come to your birthday party. He's saying, no, we'll live together work together, be of the same blood, have the same identity under the same father. You notice that he leaves off father. He says, brother, sister, mother. He doesn't say father because we become Jesus's family under God, the father. And this is what Jesus is inviting you into. There's so much controversy, scary things, stern warnings, but Jesus is nothing but love in this passage nothing but invitation in this passage. He's grounded. He's a non-anxious presence, even in the chaos. And he's inviting people into relationships with him. Belonging in a family flows, is grace, because it flows from identity, like objective realities. Nothing you can do changes the fact, changes the family that you were born into, you know, biologically. And when we trust in Jesus, we are born by an act of God into God's family. Born again is the, the expression and nothing can change that. It means that Jesus wants to be with you, to be at the, in the circle, at the table around him. And in the midst of all the drama and chaos and controversy of this passage, it, it gives us the question, who is Jesus to you? 
Where, where do you fit in this text and how you relate to Jesus? Let's just consider the three categories in our text. First, we have the crowd. Now, the crowd is a word in Greek that shows up a lot in the Gospel of Mark, oklos, and it's almost like it takes its own character. Like the crowd as one unit says things and does things and responds to Jesus. Like it's almost like it's a own character. And what Mark is trying to show us is that there's a large category of people who are like vaguely, loosely acquaintances or aware of Jesus, kind of in the vicinity, a little bit of curiosity, or maybe uh, really want stuff from him like healing, uh, but don't really want him or to want to follow him as king. A member of the crowd follows the hype, follows what's exciting, follows what, what could be good to them, what could get, give them, get him or her something. So who is Jesus to someone in the crowd? Someone powerful who might be, you know, be able to fix your problems. Well, why do people crowd around celebrities? Because you know, they can get 20 grand for an embarrassing photo of Beyonce or something like that. They can benefit from the hype, from the fame, from the power. When we look at the decline of church participation in the United States, I got to wonder if that decline is just the crowd uh, that had been around for, you know, the last few generations, just moving on to better crowds. To, better, they found better things to do on Sunday morning. People who weren't really disciples in the first place, just hanging around because it was tradition or they, they just didn't know what else to do. There wasn't, they hadn't found a better crowd for Sunday morning yet. Or because, or people, you know, the, the crowds could be people who are just like, I'm sad, or when my life is working, I'm fine, but when marriage gets hard or my kids aren't listening or I, I get sick, you know, then I, I want to draw near until I can get back, you know, back in charge, back in control of my life. So I'll swing through church to get on God's good side. It's a convenience-based thing. It's a transactional relationship with Jesus. The other, the second category we see. Uh, I kind of made up this term, are the Jesus controllers. They see Jesus as someone uh, to manage and to use for their, their true passions, their true purposes. Uh, the, the, his family and teachers of the law, they think they know better than Jesus. They think he's crazy. They, th they think he's misunderstanding the law and they think he's, they think he's evil. These are people who are probably way more familiar with Jesus, but don't let him be king. So they're, they're, they're more familiar than the crowd, but they're, they're, they still wanna be in charge and control Jesus. They don't come to him as apprentices to be with him, to learn, to, to say what he says and be against the things that he's against. They don't come to be formed into his image. They come to form Jesus into their image. Who is Jesus to these people? He, he's an he's a asset, a resource to be managed. This might look like using Jesus by, to, for your own passions. Like you select a few passages that support your particular political view or your particular you know, cause. You know, your true passion might be conservative politics. So you look for some verses that help with that. Or your true passion might be fighting for social justice. So you look for things that Jesus says that will be helpful there. But it's, it's a matter of using Jesus, controlling Jesus for your own end uh, and to manage him and minimize him rather than coming to Jesus in a posture of submission and receiving the fullness of Jesus, who he is and, and how he blows up all our categories. And the third category are the disciples. They're there, they're in the passage. 
they're mentioned by name, doing very little. We've seen very little action from, or, or words from the disciples up until this point. But there are those who do God's will, become Jesus' closest relationships. Just like at one point, Camille was a stranger, some random girl living in Louisville, Kentucky. And now, you know, she's the person I pray with every night uh, before we go to bed and the, wake up with every morning, the mother of my children. Jesus invites people to move in from the crowd, from being random and distant to being family. And there's a fullness of knowing, a safety in belonging when you can come to Jesus as Lord, knowing that you need grace, knowing you have a lot to learn. And there's an affirmation that happens when we're in a healthy, loving family that can love us and, and bless us and affirm us even as we're growing and messing up and saying dumb things. Now the question that might be on your mind, what is the will of God? Like if it says, whoever does the will of God becomes Jesus's family, what is it? Well, consider a couple of verses we could look at, but consider 1 John 3, 23. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's command lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Command of God, the, the will of God is to believe in his son and to love others. It's fundamentally, essentially about relationships. Belief is not just mental agreement that Jesus lived or that Jesus was the son of God. Because who said that in our text? The demons. Like the demons have the best theology in our text <laughs> today. So it's not a matter of just knowing the facts. Like you believe that God is one, good for you. Even demons believe that in shudder. Clearly that's not the belief that we're going for here. Instead, belief think trustful. Belief is a, a trustful level belief where you're, you're leaning back into who Jesus is and what he says uh, and following him. You would follow Jesus up the mountain and, and, do, and these disciples devote their lives to being with him, to learning his message, to learning to fight evil the way that Jesus fought evil. It's a belief that acts, a faith that follows with a humble, soft, curious, teachable heart. And so this week, the invitation is to DTR with Jesus. Define the category, uh, the, the relation, define the relationship with Jesus and uh, sit with the categories that are presented in this text and, and ask the question, ask Jesus to, to search you and know you. Maybe sit with a journal and then, and if you would like, you're like, I, I, I want to be your family. I, I want to believe, do the will of God and believe in the name of Jesus. Uh, then, then sit with the question, ask the Holy Spirit, what would a trust fall look like? Like what would something I could do, I could obey Jesus in that would only make sense if he's the King of Kings? See, see what God might ask you to do. This is not to scare us or prove anything. Instead, this is a way that we can experience the belonging with Jesus when we trust him. We, we become his family and we know that our father will take care of us because that is what Jesus has promised, uh, promised us. And that's what Jesus shows us when he goes to the cross uh, to pay the penalty for all of our sins, for all of the ways that we will fail as we follow Jesus uh, by faith. Let me pray. Oh, Father, I thank you for this passage that 
I know just kind of worked my heart over this week in all the beauty and all the controversy and all the, the pain. Um, it's the staggering reality that Jesus was called uh, demon-possessed. And uh, Father, so we just come uh, open-hearted. Holy Spirit, would you open our hearts to receive Jesus as you've revealed him in your word? Uh, Father, would you uh, let this call be um, resonating with our hearts to enter Jesus's family by believing him, by trust falling into uh, discipleship, uh, apprenticeship with, with him. Show us where we've tried to control Jesus or use Jesus for our own ends. And Father, would you uh, just open our, our eyes to the unforgivable sin, places where we would look at something that is of Jesus and, and call it evil and just give us curiosity about that. And we know that the, the Holy Spirit that you have given us uh, who trust in Jesus will, will convict our hearts. Uh, that's one of his jobs and uh, not make us feel terrible, but to allow us to turn and receive your loving embrace. We thank you for Jesus, his name, amen. Thank you for tuning in to the Carl Road Baptist Church podcast. We hope you found something that can be applied to your life today and into the future. You can always watch our past services or see them live on YouTube, Facebook, and our website at www.carlroadbaptist.org. That's Carl with a K A R L roadbaptist.org. If you search YouTube or Facebook, look for Call Road Baptist Church. And don't forget to subscribe or follow us if you are watching via a service that allows that so you can stay up to date and notified when another episode is ready for you to watch or listen to. Thanks again for sharing your time with us and putting in the effort to maintain your relationship with God. Have a fantastic week and we look forward to growing alongside you in the future with the next episode of the KRBC podcast.